you will turn to Mark chapter 14 and verse 32, the 32nd verse of Mark 14. And they come unto a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly amazed and sore troubled. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Abide ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass away from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Remove this cup from me. Howbeit not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh. And findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest thou not watch one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they knew not what to answer him. And he cometh a third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, he that betrayeth me is at hand. I have divided this uh, section, this last section of uh, the third major division, the servant of the Lord obedient unto death, which I've entitled his supreme service and work. I have divided it into three. I think it falls quite naturally into three. First, Gethsemane and what happened at Gethsemane, uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 32 to 52. Then the trial before the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate. There were two trials, actually, uh, we had the record of. From verse 53, chapter 14, to verse 15 of chapter 15. And then finally, the crucifixion and the burial, chapter 15, verse 16 to 47. Tonight, we shall be only considering the first part of the verses uh, that record what happened at Gethsemane. I have entitled these verses the supreme test of Christ's service. The supreme test of Christ's service. We have two events 
recorded in these verses, both of them taking place in or immediately around the Garden of Gethsemane. First, in the ten verses from verse 32 to 42, we have the record of his agony in the garden. And secondly, in the verses 43 to 53, we have the record of his betrayal and arrest. Now, uh, somewhere in the upper city uh, of Jerusalem, the Lord had kept the Passover with the twelve. Judas had gone out from that meal to betray him. And in the light of the full Passover moon, uh, they would have gone out of that upper room and walked down the, uh, through the city, out through one of the gates, and into the valley of the brook Kidron. Somewhere along that way, Christ had predicted that all of them would forsake him that evening. Now they'd come to Gethsemane. We cannot be absolutely certain where Gethsemane uh, it, it was situated, except that it was somewhere on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, uh, probably on the lower slopes, and that it was east of the brook Kidron. That's all really we can be certain of. Um, it was a plot of ground enclosing probably an orchard of olive trees and an oil or olive press. If you look, take your Bible, in verse 32, they went to a place which was called Gethsemane. And this uh, little word here, place, means literally a clearly defined or enclosed plot or parcel of land. Now, if you compare that with John chapter 18 and uh, verse 1, you... He uses another word, <clears throat> John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, a garden. And the word John uses is the normal word for garden, or meaning really garden, orchard, plantation. Gethsemane is an Aramaic word. Gatshmana, and just simply means oil press. So when we bring these things together, um, evidently there was a clearly defined little estate, little piece of ground belonged to somebody, enclosed. Within it was an orchard of olive trees and an olive press, uh, an oil uh, press. It was evidently a place to which Christ and the disciples often went. Again, in John chapter 18 and verse 2, we are told that, um, uh, verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
And again, Luke chapter 22 and uh, verse um, 39 and 40 adds to our understanding in this that it says he came out and went as his custom was unto the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him and when he was at the place or in the Revised Standard Version when he came to the place in other words it was a place um, which uh, was often frequented by the um, disciples since it was forbidden to plant any gardens within the city walls all the gardens belonging to the inhabitants of Jerusalem were outside the city walls. Now that's an interesting point. There wasn't a single garden permitted within the city. So everyone who had a garden, it was all outside of the walls. Sometimes these gardens were let to pilgrims coming up to the festivals and high uh, days, uh, holy days. One very old tradition links both the upper room where the disciples and Jesus kept the Passover and the early church had its meetings and the Garden of Gethsemane with Mark's family. And those who believe this uh, tradition find evidence for it in the reference to a certain young man in verse 51, the certain young man who is referred to nowhere else in any of the other Gospels, who followed the Lord when all the others forsook him. He only had his nightshirt on, uh, just a linen around him. In fact, it's, we shall come to it next week, perhaps. It was probably a prayer shawl, the thing he kept under his trousers. Uh, and he was probably asleep. He just put it over himself, um, being a good, devout uh, believer. And uh, um, he, when he saw the commotion, walked after the Lord, some of the other fellows got hold of him and he left the prayer shawl in their hand and fled for his life. Uh, so who was this young man? Why on earth does it, is it told? Because it has no bearing on the story at all. But of those who bleed, this is evidence uh, that uh, this is John Mark. Um, the gospel uh, is named after him because it was through Peter that he wrote it down, um, Peter was the one who gave him the facts, John Mark wrote it down, and as it were, this was the one point in which John Mark came into the story. Well, that may, may not be so. Whatever we are not certain about, of one thing there can be no doubt at all, Gethsemane marked the battleground of Christ's life. Many imagine that that battleground was Calvary. But make no mistake about it, Calvary was not the battleground. The battle of Christ's life was fought and won in Gethsemane. Without that victory, there would have been no work for Christ to do on Calvary. He would have been disqualified. Victory in the Garden of Gethsemane was absolutely essential. For if Christ was about to offer on Calvary his supreme service, <coughs> in Gethsemane, that service of his was put to its severest 
its supreme test. The powers of darkness had but one aim. By every means at their disposal to deflect Christ from Calvary. To defeat him in such a manner that he would have been disqualified from rendering that service by which you and I have been saved. They knew too well what his real work was. And they had to stop him somehow from reaching the cross. From the little we have experienced, any one of us who's a child of God, of satanic pressure and antagonism, I think we can dimly understand what Christ must have faced in that hour. It is no exaggeration to say that this was the battle of the ages. If Satan had fought God many times before, both before history began and after it had begun, and fought God powerfully, if his cunning, his might, his intelligence had been used many times in the long drawn-out conflict over the purpose of God being fulfilled, then here at Gethsemane he flung into play every weapon he had. For this was the battle of all the battles Satan ever fought. And for this, the whole satanic hierarchy was mobilized. If God was to be defeated, if the redeeming purpose of, God's, of God was to be frustrated, if man was to be kept in bondage and darkness, if this fallen world order was to be made permanent, if Satan's position as prince of this world, was to be ensured, then he had got to win this battle at Gethsemane. We can be sure that he used every single thing possible, spiritual, mental, physical, to deter Christ from the will of God. The battle, it may surprise many of you to know, lasted little more than one hour. But it must have been an hour such as none of us will ever know. If you turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 37... Jesus came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? <coughs> it may surprise you to know that this battle of all the ages lasted just over one hour. But upon that one hour, 
depended the eternal salvation of all who believe. In this one hour, Christ, the servant of the Lord, faced the supreme crisis and test of his life. Now, if you will take your Bibles and uh, we will uh, look at these verses from verse 32. Entering the garden, Christ had left the eight somewhere near the entrance, telling them to sit there whilst, uh, whilst he prayed. Verse 32. Uh, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Taking Peter, James and John, the three who had so often been with him on some of the most sacred moments of his life and ministry, he went further into the garden and began to show uh, signs of very great pressure and emotional distress. Verse 33, he took with him Peter, James, and John, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Uh, telling these three to remain at that point and to keep awake, he went a little further. Luke tells us, as far as you can throw a stone, just a stone's cast, not uh, as some of the boys would throw it, uh, but just gently, uh, a stone's cast, and um, fell on the ground and began to pray. Verse 34, 35, 36. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. For the first time that night, in that night, we begin to recognize the signs of very great crisis. The seemingly peaceful atmosphere was totally deceptive. I suppose most of us, with the wisdom of hindsight, would think that if we'd been there, we wouldn't have been like those three disciples. But I have seen many of God's people sleeping through times when God has been doing something quite significant. This seemingly peaceful atmosphere, the full, the light of the full Passover moon, the uh, quiet, fragrant garden, the uh, delicate tracery of the olive branches against the night sky lit up by the moon, the drowsy disciples, the few remaining twinkling lights in the city across the valley, all of that was deceptive. The truth was that that very place, that actual garden, that hour in time, was the spiritual battlefield of time. More terrible than any of the battlefields of human history. Marshaled there in the unseen 
where all the forces of darkness, a concentration of all the forces Satan could muster. Every device, every weapon in that host of evil was trained upon the one form of Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Now, there are a number of clues in the story as we have it here recorded. Um, and we have to say as we look at these clues that we are face to face again uh, with mystery. In verse 33, he began to be greatly amazed and saw trouble. That's the revised version. The New English Bible renders it horror and dismay came over him. Phillips puts it, he began to be horror-stricken and desperately depressed. The first word signifies to be greatly amazed or astonished. It's frequently associated, so Vine says, with terror as well as with wonder. Now, if you look at to Mark chapter 9, verse 15, as Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, it says, the people saw him and were greatly amazed. It's the same word. Evidently, the light still shining out of his face uh, caused the amazement, the astonishment of wonder. In uh, Mark 16, uh, verses 5 and 6, we have the uh, amazement that comes from um, uh, terror. In fact, one of the other Gospels says that when they saw the angel standing there, they were affrighted. Uh, there it is again, they were greatly amazed or uh, astonished. They um, were terrified. The second word used here, translated in the revised version, saw troubled, it just signifies to be much distressed or depressed or cast down. So mark those two words, will you? And will you also note he began to be? So this wasn't just some sudden uh, momentary thing, but it lasted for quite a portion of the hour. This agitation, this anguish, whatever it was, he began to be, saw, uh, uh, to be greatly amazed and saw a trouble. Indeed, Luke tells us that a little later on, in an agony, he prayed the more earnestly. So it seems that it increased. Um, then again, in verse 34, the Lord Jesus, and we have another clue, my soul, he said, is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Uh, the New American Standard Bible renders this, my soul is deeply uh, Grieve to the point of death. Um, New English Bible says, My heart is ready to break with grief. We ought to note that this is one of the few references to the soul of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And it came from his own lips. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Mark that phrase, even unto death. Here was something extreme, 
something intense, something overwhelming. The pressure was being put on his soul, his will, his emotions, his reasoning powers. Now, this is very interesting. That's where the battle centered then, in his will, his emotions, and in his reasoning powers. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. The pressure that was being exerted upon his soul produced an overwhelming sorrow so that he thought he could not get through it. All of this betrays no small conflict. The disciples had never seen Christ in all the three years they had lived with him, slept with him, eaten with him, known him intimately. They had never seen him in this condition before. We do not know what Satan brought before the mind of Christ, nor how he exerted pressure on him or sought to influence him. We only know that whatever it was that he, he faced, it nearly killed him, even unto death. Something so awful so horrific in its dimensions, so satanically dark, that it produced in Christ a reaction of horror, of amazed dismay, of deep depression and consuming sorrow. Mark the words amazement. Why should the Son of God be amazed? Did he not know all things? What was it? that caused it to be written of him, that he began to be greatly astonished, greatly amazed. The word in connection with our Lord Jesus is quite remarkable. What then could possibly amaze him? He who knew what was in a man, he who knew things about people and revealed the details to them, he who could stop a, a storm in a moment, who could raise the dead, who knew exactly what he was facing in the cross. What was it that so greatly appalled him, that so greatly astonished him? What was it that brought about such deep depression, such great distress? To this we must add, in verse 35, the little sentence, He fell on the ground. He fell on the ground. As if the anguish, the pressure, the spiritual and mental conflict was too great for kneeling or standing. It was the normal Jewish practice to stand for prayer. Sometimes, at moments of great solemnity, people knelt, like Solomon did at one point in the dedication of the temple. He knelt. Very rarely did anyone ever fling themselves on the ground or prostrate themselves on the ground. We are told of the Lord Jesus Christ that leaving the three, he went further into the garden, a little ahead, a little farther on, and fell on the ground. And pray. Now that is another clue to something 
of extreme anguish. Luke, in fact, tells us that he began by kneeling. So that at first he fell on his knees, but it was too much for him, and he fell flat on the ground. So do remember, dear children of God, when you see these pictures of Jesus kneeling there with a seraphic look upon his face as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, that those words, if it be possible for this cup to pass from, from me, were uttered when he was prostrate on the ground. In the dust. Again in verse 35. We have another clue. He prayed that if it were possible. The hour might pass from him. And in verse 36. All things are possible. He said to thee. To the father. Remove this cup from me. The disciples. Had never. Heard. Him. Or seen him pray like this before. We have no record that the Lord ever fell on the ground when he prayed. We certainly have no record that he ever prayed a prayer like this before in his life. He had always spoken confidently and unflinchingly about his hour and his cup. All oh, those wonderful statements that he made not once but a number of times when he spoke about mine hour has not yet come. Or he spoke of the hour confidently, unflinchingly. Three times he prayed in this way using the same words. Unfortunately, because of these lethargic disciples, we don't know what else he prayed. I shall come to that if we have time later. Uh, we only have what they, by the grace of God, stayed awake to hear. What we know is that three times Jesus prayed the same words. That alone reveals some crushing burden, some point of crisis, some perplexing issue which could not be easily got through. When a man is so, has such a burden in him that he can't just kneel in prayer and can't even stand in prayer and can't even walk backwards and forwards and pray, if you've ever known a prayer like that, but has to throw himself full length on the ground. And when he gets up and goes back to the other, and then back again and prays the same thing, flinging himself on the ground, and then again, three times, it is evidence of some tremendous issue, some colossal burden. Perhaps one of the most touching and beautiful pictures of the genuine humanity of Christ that we find anywhere in the New Testament is here. We see it in the way three times he came back to those sleepy uncomprehending disciples. This time it was not principally to help them. This, and this is where we see the genuine humanity of Christ. Many of us forget that he was as truly man as any one of us. As well as truly God. 
He came back because he was in need of their companionship. As a man, he needed their support. Three times he came back to find out whether they were awake, whether they were just alive, watching with him, as Matthew put it. And he said, keep awake with me. That's all he asked of them. He didn't ask them to pray the prayer he was praying. He didn't ask them to enter into the agony. All he asked was, keep awake with me. In that little picture, in that we have a little picture, but surely one of the most beautiful pictures of the genuine humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think again we see in the fact that this was the one time he asked for their help, we see something of the battle he was passing through. In Luke's record of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 39 uh, to uh, 46, our understanding is enlarged, at least in my estimation, by three additional facts. Now, here they are. The first is, he tells us in verse 43, that an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen Christ, not at the end of the battle, but after his first time of prayer. Now, I think that is a very significant fact. Most people seem to think that after the Lord had endured in the garden, then the angel came and sort of uh, succored him and strengthened him and renewed him. But no, it was before the worst part of the battle that the angel came to strengthen Christ in order that he might endure. Now that, I'm sure, is a clue to something of very great gravity. This battle was no ordinary battle. That's why I say this is the battle of the ages. Christ had never needed anything like this in the whole of his life. At this point, even for him to get through, an angel had to appear and strengthen him. The second uh, point that uh, Luke makes, which helps us, I think, uh, is in verse 44, he uses the strongest word for emotional strain or anguish he could use to describe the heart of this battle. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. Not just pain. Not just anguish but something utterly intense. Now, when we speak of a person being in agony, we, we sometimes use the word loosely, unfortunately. But if we were to speak of someone and said they were in agony, we mean not, if we said they were in pain, that would be terrible. If we said they were in anguish, that would be worse still. But if we said they were in agony, that is the strongest term that we could use uh, uh, about anyone passing through a point, a uh, 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 phase of duress. Severe, intense, consuming anguish. 
being in an agony. In uh, note two it says he prayed the more earnestly. Isn't it interesting that the Savior himself had to pray the more earnestly? The third thing we find also in the same verse, Luke records that Christ's sweat became like great drops of blood falling upon the ground. Not just mark you, not just running down his face, nor just uh, causing his garments to become wet, but so tremendous was the sweat of our Lord Jesus that it actually fell in drops on the ground. Whatever kind of anguish did he pass through uh, to have produced such a thing. Now there's another thing about this. This was the same night in which Peter warmed himself by the fire. So it wasn't warm weather. If you want to check that, that's Mark uh, uh, 14 verse 67. It says ex explicitly that Peter was warming himself by the fire. Although we know that was a few hours later when the temperature does drop especially as Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. Nevertheless, it was springtime and it was not warm weather. So this perspiration, this sweat was not produced uh, by clammy, a clammy kind of weather. Of course, the other thing which was of particular interest to Dr. Luke was the fact that it was a sweat... Uh, like great drops of blood. <coughs> now all we can say is that there he must have been passing through the severest emotional strain and anguish that is possible for a human being to go through. Now bringing all of this together we begin to realize that this is no ordinary battle. The servant of the Lord is facing the crisis of his life, the supreme test of his service. And in facing it, he was utterly alone, humanly speaking. The disciples could not even keep their eyes open. It says expressly in verse uh, uh, 40, I think it is, that their eyes were very heavy. And you all know what that's like, to have heavy eyes. Perhaps some of you have got it tonight. Uh, it's a fight to keep your eyes open, the lids drop. However much you try, you just can't do it. They dozed through the greatest battle of the ages. The hour upon which even their own salvation depended. And don't let any of us judge them. We've all got the same propensity. Christ could have been so angry, so rightly irritated with them, but he was not. A gentle rebuke, a very gentle rebuke, and then words of encouragement, of understanding, of instruction. 
Listen to his words in verses 37 and 38. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that, that there again uh, we have a beautiful picture of true service. Um, the Lord would have been quite within his rights to have rounded upon them and sort of shaken them a few strong, hard words, pound them into the ground and sort of wake them up to the fact of what was happening. But no, uh, not at all. When he was facing the battle of his life, when he needed their support and company and received neither, out of his own anguish and sorrow, he serves them. Now, never forget that, any of you. That right out of his own anguish and sorrow, at the point when Luke tells us, being in an agony, he prayed the more. It was at that point that these beautiful words came out of his mouth. No irritation, no anger, gentle rebuke, understanding, even instruction. Isn't it amazing too that he speaks to Peter using his Hebrew name, Simon? Isn't that beautiful that he speaks to Peter as the representative of the others? If you will look back to the verses 26 to 31 of this same chapter, 14 of Mark, you will find that he was the one who had acted as the spokesman for the rest when he said, we'll certainly not uh, uh, forsake you. It seems that the Lord was gently reminding him of the frailty of his own nature. It's quite clear <clears throat> that in facing some tremendous issue, Christ flinched and faltered for a moment. Never at any point had he done so before. We have no record that Christ ever flinched or faltered in the gospel record. From the beginning, he had known what his work was and had moved steadily towards it. What then was it that made him, in the last day of his life, in the last hours almost of his life, flinch? <coughs> All agree that whatever it was, it's summed up in the two words, the hour and the cup. We've got them both in this passage. Uh, verse 35. Uh, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Compare that with verse 41. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And the other is in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now it is in these two words, the, the hour and the cup, that uh, we find 
Uh, anyway, uh, how can I put it? These two words sum up whatever it was that caused him to falter. Over this there has been much discussion and not a little controversy. There are two main views of why he faltered. The first and the most generally held view, we can call it the traditional view, is that Christ as man prayed as to whether there was not some other way known to God's sovereignty by which man could be saved other than the cross. When he found that there was not, he accepted it. The second view is that Christ never flinched from going to the cross. Nor did he flinch in the garden of Gethsemane. Satan was trying to kill Christ in the garden of Gethsemane by exerting such pressure upon him that he, were, he would have physically died. And thus, by so doing, frustrate God's saving purpose. Christ prayed that Satan might be foiled in this attempt unless it was the will of God that he should die in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed that uh, Satan might be foiled and he might be allowed to go forward to the cross. Now I must say I find difficulty in both these views. It seems quite clear to me that Christ knew that there was only one way to save us. And that way was the cross. I, he said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my uh, life as a ransom for many. He had spoken again and again of the cross, especially in these last weeks of his death, of his burial, of his res resurrection. I do not believe that he ever questioned uh, the fact that the cross was the only way that fallen humanity could be reconciled to God. Nor do I believe that the way the hour and the cup are used here is different to the way it's been used in all, in all the many times before. In other words, I can't find agreement with the second view either. It's a very interesting view. But this would mean that the way the Lord used the, the term this, the hour and this cup was quite different from the way he'd used it hitherto. I think we face very real difficulty in this whole matter. But, in fact we are facing the essential mystery of the person of Christ, truly man and truly God. It seems to me that it was the cost of our salvation beyond all human computation and human comprehension which for a moment filled God's servant with appalled amazement. Not the cost in physical pain or torture to be endured, not even the cost of physical death, 
It included all that. But that was the least part of it. It was the fathomless mystery of the sinless one being made sin. The unknown experience of not only being alienated from God for the first time in his being, forsaken by God, cast off by God, but bearing in himself the righteous and deserved wrath of God upon all sin and unrighteousness. It was the tasting of death for every man. Now I think if we see it like that, we begin to understand what it was that caused that great amazement. It was the recognition on the part of Christ of unknown, unexplored experience. All of us know the fear of the unknown. It is a common thing to every human being, the fear of the unknown. The Lord Jesus had never known what it was to be a sinner. He had never known for a single moment in his being, nor in his earthly life, a cloud between him and God. He didn't know what it was to be separated from God, let alone forsaken, and let alone bearing the wrath of God upon all sin, tasting of death for every man. Maybe we get a little more light when we compare Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. Now underline that, that he should taste of death for every man. Turn over the page to chapter 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and having been heard for his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation. It seems to me that it was not physical death from which Christ sought to be saved with strong crying and tears. Nor was it just and merely physical death that he tasted for every man. Surely it was all that realm of Alienation from God, of corruption, of perversion, of distortion, 
disorder, which is summed up in the word death in the Bible. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or again in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You being dead in your trespasses and sins. Again in verse 5. You being dead in your trespasses and sins. It is interesting, by the way, that literally, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it is, he prayed with strong crying and tears that he might be saved out of death. Now that, I was talking with Brother Shaw beforehand, would be a very interesting study to really go into that and to find out just what those verses mean. There are some very, very interesting possibilities there. We can't go into them because of time this evening. What we see is this. It was not the physical side that caused Christ to falter. It was the unknown experience of entering into that realm of death, spiritual death, that caused his anguish. I think we see all this even more clearly in the number of Old Testament references to the cup. Now I wonder whether many of you have ever paused to think about this. You all know the cup of salvation and you all know the cup of blessing. But um, just uh, listen to these. Psalm 11. Psalm 11 verse 6. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning winds will be the portion of their cup. <coughs> Fire, brimstone, burning winds will be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75, verse 8. 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine foameth. It is full of mixture. And he poureth out of the same. Surely the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall drain them and drink them. Cup of judgment. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. Thou hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Thou hast drunk in the bowl of the cup of staggering and drained it. Verse 22, thus saith thy Lord God and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken out of thy hand the cup of staggering, even the bowl of the cup of my wrath. Thou shalt no more drink it again. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto me, take this cup of the wine of, the, of wrath at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Now, it's not only so, but I could give you many more scriptures in the Old Testament. You've got them also, even in the New, in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. Revelation 14, verse 10. 
He also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is prepared unmixed in the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Also again in chapter 16, <coughs> verse 19. Now, these references give us some dim idea of what it was that occasioned in Christ this most terrible anguish. This cup, that he said, all things are possible to thee, Father. It was not the cross, but it was the sudden realization of what the cup meant. He never flinched from saving us. He never faltered in his determination to see us saved. But the cost, that produced an anguish. Quite beyond us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, we must say, if for a moment, and only for a moment, Christ faltered, even then the victory was sure. He never at any point, as I, as I read the record, he never at any point asked to be excused from the will of God. In all the earnestness of his prayer, in all the anguish of his soul, in all the transparent honesty of his relationship with God, there was an if it be possible. Verse 35, and not what I will, but what thou wilt. Verse 36. Now you may not quite understand the fine distinction I'm making in this point, but I think it's a very important one. I don't think the Lord Jesus asked ever at any point to be excused from the will of God. It was the spontaneous reaction to the cost. His if spelt victory. Dear Lord Jesus, all things are possible to thee. He must have known as he said it that this was one thing that it was impossible to change. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. If the trial had been terrible, the test severe, the victory was glorious. The servant of the Lord had won the battle. We have many times emphasized the fact that Christ never asks us to do anything which he himself has not done. Here in the garden, we see the clearest illustration and example in him of Mark 8 and verse 34. Any man would follow me, let him take up his, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There he denied himself. There in that garden of Gethsemane, he gave up all right to himself once again left his self behind 
took up his cross and followed the will of his Father. In that moment, the great battle of the ages was won. It only remained for the actual work to be done, the cost to be paid. Our salvation was secure. The servant of the Lord had faced the battle alone. Not one of the disciples, not even the three chief ones, had uh, uh, supported him in any way. Alone he faced the crisis, alone he faced the cost, and alone he won. Having, as it says in Hebrews 5, verse 7, 8, 9, having learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, complete, mature, he now goes forward to become to all them that obey him the author, the cause of eternal salvation. I hope this evening that our little study might be used by God to deliver us from that unfortunate and unhappy familiarity and cheapness with the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, which is so prevalent today. As if somehow or other it was an easy thing for him to save us. As if really because he was God, with a flick of his hand, he could move through it all and somehow redeem our soul. If the Bible record <coughs> means anything, it surely means this that it costs Jesus everything. And if we understand that, we shall understand the preciousness of the souls he has redeemed. How amazing that God should have put such a price on you and me. How amazing that Jesus should have loved us in such a way as to go through this for us. There are just four small points I would like to mention in closing. I think beyond this other great lesson we've had tonight, they are of real value. Firstly, in some way, don't ask me to explain, there can be no real service without an essential battle and victory. Everyone who serves God must, sooner or later, face the cost. It is the test of service. None of us will ever go through a Gethsemane. None of us will ever know the anguish that our Lord Jesus knew. But every one of us who serves the Lord will face the same issue. And we will be subject to the same temptation to get out of it, to find an easier way, 
to find some way of doing the will of God without the cost. It cannot be. The service of God must cost ourselves life. And that battle is always won with but what thou wilt. Never forget that. That is the way every time this battle is won. Not what I will, but what thou wilt. It is Mark chapter 8 verse 34 in action. Denying yourself, giving up all right to yourself, leaving self behind, taking up your cross, following him. Second little lesson, never, dear child of God, never fear transparent honesty in all your dealings with God. I have seen Christian after Christian go out like lights because they have hid things from God. Why hide anything from God? It is better to be transparently honest and let it come out into the open with God than to think that you can bury it somewhere and he doesn't see. Jacob was the biggest deceiver, the biggest schemer in the whole Middle East, but there was one thing about Jacob that was his salvation. He was transparently honest with God. He even bargained with God. Things like, you know, if you bring me back here, I'll build you a house here. And God understood it all and smiled. <coughs> a wicked old schemer. <laughs> but God said, he's being honest. I shall bring him back here. And he will not build me a house, but I will build him a house. And he did. The house of Israel. Oh, there are many things. Don't ever fear being transparently honest. You see, when the Lord Jesus poured out all this, he was being transparently honest and has given theologians trouble for the last 2,000 years. Oh, the problems we've got with his transparent honesty. How could he say, if it be possible, let this hour pass away from me. How could he say all things are possible to thee? Remove this cup. But it was the transparent honesty of a deep, intimate, genuine relationship to God the Father. Pour out your heart always to the Lord. When you're faced with some issue like this, and you feel afraid of it, and you're afraid of the cost, don't hold back, don't go into a corner, don't just get depressed. Bring all in a corner, bring your depression out into the open with the Lord. Let him see it, let him see the anguish. Let him know. Don't inflict the rest of God's children, <laughs> as most of us do, beating one another into the ground with our burdens and problems. Let it out before God. And you can be quite sure that God will understand. After all, it was the Christ who came back without any irritation to say, are you asleep, Peter? Couldn't you watch one single hour? Keep awake and keep praying. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh 
this week. That same compassionate understanding Christ is the one who's on the throne tonight and the one who has saved you and keeps you. Never forget that. The basis again of all your honesty is this. Not what I will, but what thou wilt. If that can be the basis of your honesty, all is well. Thirdly, if Christ learned obedience by the things which he suffered, how much more we? You do not drift into obedience. Never forget that. You do not drift into obedience. You learn obedience by the things you suffer. In no other way can true character spiritual and great character be formed. And out of that kind of character comes service. So you cannot really serve the Lord unless you're prepared to learn obedience by the things you suffer. And lastly, the words of our Lord Jesus in verse 38. <coughs> Watch and pray. Literally keep awake and keep praying. Remember, all failure, now this is dogmatic, all failure, all defeat, all backsliding starts with spiritual sleepiness. Go away and think about it. All defeat. You go right back through the whole Old Testament. How did David fall? A little bit of sleepiness. Didn't go out to battle. Stayed back and had a sunbathe on the roof and happened to see another sunbathing somewhere else. I think she was having a bath. That's how it all began. You will find that every departure from the will of God, every defeat, Every collapse goes back to this one simple little thing of being lethargic, being sleepy spiritually. Jesus put his finger upon it in the moment of his own greatest anguish. Keep awake. Keep awake. I've seen so many people who began so well. And now, where are they? What happened? They didn't keep awake. Learn to recognize the danger immediately. Be honest with yourself. For the moment you see that you're getting sleepy spiritually, wake up. Get someone to pray with you. Do something about it. Never leave it. Or you will pass beyond the point of caring. Pass beyond the point of caring. And then you're finished. You can never pray if you do not keep awake. Just remember that. You can never, I know many who don't because they're asleep. <coughs> you cannot pray if you do not keep awake. You must watch in order to pray. Of course, if you want to read some little thing out of a book as a prayer or something like that, a few sort of memorized words, 
It's not too bad. You can do that when you're nearly half asleep, and some people do it in their sleep. <laughs> but to really pray, to really pray, that needs watchfulness. Then again, the problem is not the spirit, it's the flesh. I suppose that can be said of everyone who's a child of God in this place tonight. The problem is not the spirit, it's the flesh. The spirit's willing, it's the flesh that's weak. That needs discipline. You learn obedience by the things you suffer. And lastly, in this fourth little lesson, how much the disciples lost of that vital hour because they were asleep. Do you know, probably another chapter could have been added to the Gospels. They'd only kept awake. But if you just read out and have a time watch, clock, by you, the words that are recorded here of his prayer, you will see that it is the tiniest fraction of an hour. The tiniest fraction of an hour. We have but a fraction of what happened. And you know that can be true of us when we're spiritually sleeping. We can lose so much, so much, because of lethargy. I began at eight o'clock speaking, just gone, and it's ten past nine. This one hour we have passed through was exactly the same length as the hour in which this battle of the ages was fought and won. Shall we pray? Lord, we just lift up our hearts to Thee. <coughs> thou knowest, Lord, how dull of mind and heart we can be, and how blind when it comes to spiritual things. Oh, Lord, that Thou wouldst open our, the eyes of our hearts, that we could see something, Lord, of what it meant to Thee to win us. Father, we commit this time into thy hands. By thy spirit, watch over it, Lord. Write it in our hearts. May we be those who learn every lesson practically. Above all, may we be those who, seeing and understanding just a little more of what our Lord went through, have lives that are permanently changed by what they've seen. And we ask it together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.